Welcome to the Reporter Podcast with Bo Berman. Hey everybody, I'm Bo Berman and this is Reporter, the podcast that delves into the minds and lives of broadcast news reporters and anchors, delivering a behind-the-scenes look at their careers, their methods, best practices, and some personal stories from the trenches of journalism. And today, a very special guest, somebody who is not only a on-air investigative reporter for many, many years, but also someone who has done a very unique thing. He has been able to take a story that he did for on-air purposes and turn it into a published book. So uh, I know that I've aspired to do this at one point, or at least had the hubris to think that it's something I could do. I'm not sure if it is, but um, I, I would not doubt if many of us, you know, based on the stories we cover, would be interested in writing a book about our stories. So uh, without further ado, uh, Brian Kubler, welcome to the show. Hey, Bo, how you doing, man? Good, I hope I didn't butcher your last name. Um, no, you're good. <laughs> no, no, but no more than on my anchors do. So you're fine. Q blur, Brian Q blur. Um, <laughs> yeah. So Brian, you work for uh, Scripps, the Scripps TV station in Baltimore, Maryland, um, WMAR. And how long have you been there? Uh, I've been there a little over 11 years now. 11 years. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So we um, just, you know, for in case the audience is curious, um, how the hell you ended up here. Um, or how I ended up here, how anything ended up anywhere. Um, we met uh, about seven years ago uh, in Boston at one of the IRE conferences. And if, if you're one of the select people who's listened to every episode of this podcast, you'll see that that's a common theme. A lot of my recruitment uh, for the podcast is, is IRE uh, veterans like yourself, Brian. But um, yeah, so we met at, the, at my first IRE conference, which was in um, Boston, Massachusetts. And uh, had a good time up there. Uh, a lot of learning. Um, uh, a few uh, drinks are always had at those <laughs> conferences. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it could be a mess. Yeah. <laughs> and by a few, I mean three, just literally three the whole weekend, one per night. Right, um, that's it. That's, that's it. it. Yeah. That's all. Um, the rest is all Usually learning. Usually you're, you're hard at work in all the seminars and, and, and you're, 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 you know, you're, you're best behavior. Absolutely. That's what you have to do. Yeah. No, I mean, actually, it's funny because, you know, some stations, if you're lucky, will pay for you to go to that conference. If you're lucky, I mean, they will pay yeah. your room, your board, your conference fee, which I, I, it's like 200 bucks or something like that. It's probably going to go up to 500 or something crazy and um, with inflation. But, and then other, other stations, they're just like, yeah, no, that's okay. Um, you're not really allowed to go. Oh, okay. You really want to go? All right. Use vacation days and pay for it yourself. And um, I've been on both sides of that coin. Um, I definitely prefer to be on the side where they pay for it. But um, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's um, I've you've you've heard like the uh, stories about like some people show up, they do it on their own dime, they do it on their their own vacation time, yeah. um, and then they're you're right, you're right. There are other organizations that invest in their people and send them there. You know, uh, I'm fortunate enough to be the latter. I mean, Scripps um, has a big Scripps day there every year, and so they usually send um, teams or a couple of reporters from every station to go there. Um, I have not been in the last couple of years for various different scheduling incidents, but um, yeah, no, I've, I've been to a fair amount of them. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's really, it's, I think it's cool when a station sends their investigative reporter. I mean, we even sent our photographers there one year yeah. or a couple of years. Yeah. Um, cause I think, I think you get a lot out of it, you know? Yeah. It's a great program, a great, um, organization. And I think it's a testament to it that, um, there are people who, uh, fork out hundreds of dollars out of pocket, use vacation time. And I've been one of those people, 
um, because it's that valuable, you know, to go to a learning seminar that does not seem like that would add up, but it's that good. I mean, the first time I went to it, it like changed my life. I mean, I literally drove away from that conference thinking my life has literally changed. I felt like I kind of, you know, it's used as a cliche, but I kind of like, kind of felt like I found my tribe a little bit. Like people yeah, just thought yeah. the same way as me in a good way. Like they had the same sense of humor, like very cool experience. Yeah, no, it's, it's great. It could be too tribal sometimes, I think. Yeah, <laughs> sometimes that's it's, true. It's, I like to step away from it and do, and do some, you know, I like to take, I've been a bunch of years, obviously I've seen you there a bunch of times, but there, there are a couple of years where like one year it was during like, uh, like well, I got married and so like I wasn't going to go. And then the, another odd year I said, just take a year off because, you know, I like to space it out. But um, no, it's every time you go, I usually come back with a, with a nice, kind of nugget of information that I, that kind of, I work out to the rest of the year, you know, it's a, it's a good, it's a good place to get kind of dip in and out of, you know? Yeah. Excuse that weird noise in the background. My Pomeranian, <laughs> my Pomeranian is coughing his lungs coughing out. Coughing up um, something? Yeah. Yeah. He's actually quite, he's like term, not terminally sick, but like, he's like long-term sick. Um, he's about to turn 13 and he's just struggling with all these health issues, but he's hanging on. So, oh, man. But he has this okay. little cough that uh, comes out, sounds like a gremlin. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, no, it's a great conference. Um, yeah, and I mean, I think life-changing for some, some people, at least for me, um, which is not, not even being overly dramatic. But um, so what, you, you've stopped going to it because you kind of feel like you've learned everything or that you're... Like, oh, no, 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 no. No, I just, I just haven't been, I think I didn't go last year. Um, for a, a scheduling conflict or something like that, but yeah, no, yeah. no, I, 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 I attempt to go at least once every other year. Yeah, no, I'm just kidding. I actually haven't gone the last like three or four years either, and not because I don't love it, but it's same thing as you, just you know, life events and family stuff. Um, right. And also, I guess my station wouldn't pay for it, so that factored in. But um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I miss it. I miss it. Um, yeah. So um, you've been at WMAR for 11 years. Um, where did you, you grew up in, uh, is it Long Island or New Jersey or something like that? You got it. You got it. Long Island. Yeah. Okay. I was a, I'm a Long Island kid. Yeah. Long Island. Um, and you went to high school there and did you go to college? I went to college in, uh, University of Maryland College Park. And so I was down here for college and then I got my first job. Uh, I was bartending after college and then I finally put a resume tape together and finally got a job after a few months out of college at Twin Falls, Idaho is where I first landed my first gig. Hmm. Um, and that, yeah, hmm, the high desert of Idaho. <laughs> and then, uh, I spent, uh, I spent a year there and then I came back. I decided to go to grad school. Um, and then went to, is that worth um, it? went back. Well, I met my mentor on, do you, do you remember a chat, like, uh, back when chat rooms were like a thing, like yeah. the site called media line where like a lot of us would get on and talk about the business and all that kind of stuff. No, that one, jobs, that one outdates me. Cause I was like probably a little bit, you know, I was probably like a freshman in high school at that point. So I was focused. Oh, I, was, I lived on a That's shoe nice. message board called Nike talk. <laughs> I was like a shoe freak. Um, no, so. no, no. Um, but I mean, like I met, I met, uh, who ended up becoming my mentor for, in the business and he, he was a big Mizzou guy and he's like, you need to go to Mizzou. He's like, yeah, I sent him a tape and he's like, Hey, your stuff looks great. Well, no, he's like, your stuff looks terrible, but I could see that you have a lot of like talent and promise. So I want yeah. you to go to the to university of Missouri 
for grad school. And I was like, I don't want to go to grad school. Mm. Um, but eventually I said, you know what? Fine. So I, I, I left uh, the job there and went to grad school in the middle of Missouri for two years. But because I had a year of experience, I kind of didn't have to take a lot of like those class, those intro classes or whatever. Mm-hmm. And the one thing about Missouri that makes it the number one journalism school in the country for TV is that they is that they own their com- their commercial NBC affiliate KOMU there. Mm-hmm. So like your lab work is done on a commercial television, not like a university like sub channel or something. Right. So like you're literally working for a commercial television station. Uh, and because I had a year experience, I went right into that. So I kind of consider it working through grad school because I did, you know, I, I went straight out to the station and started working. Right. Um, and then I did my grad degree there for two years. And then after I got done with that, uh, I got a job in Memphis, Tennessee um, at WREG down there, the CBS affiliate. And I stayed down there for about six years. Loved that city, but there's only so long a northerner can stay down in the south. So, um <laughs> Then I got uh, I got the uh, the news director at the competition in Memphis that I was working against pretty much my entire time down there. Uh, became the news director at WMAR TV in Baltimore, and she immediately called me and she was like, "I need someone like you up here." And I was like, "Hey, I went to school up there. I've been trying to get down to I've been trying to get back to DC, Baltimore, my entire year, my entire career because I loved the area here when I was in school." And so she hired me, and the rest is history. Wow. Hmm. So it sounds like you, you do value, put a pretty good value on the Missouri experience. Yeah, um, I do. Um, I, you know, it's, it's a master's degree. So you learned a lot of like, I learned a lot of theory and like, I really deep dive kind of like uh, egg heady journalism stuff. But like, mm-hmm. for, you know, for me, it, it was, I enjoyed it. I had to write a thesis and, and I learned how to, um, my old thesis was on narrative journalism and how I think it's important regardless of, because I think back then when I was doing it, um, narrative journalism was mostly people recognize that as mostly features. Mm-hmm. Um, and my whole career there and in my thesis was to apply that to hard news. Oh. Um, so like uh, a hard news narrative style. And it was all like, you know, and lab work and stuff like that. And like trying to prove it in my thesis and whatever. And then I went to Memphis and, you know, I was, it's a, you know, big time crime city and it's, it's constantly hard news. And I was working for a hard charging hard news director. And so, you know, when I wanted to do features, she's like, uh, no. And she like throw me out on murders and like, you know, fires and court cases and all this stuff. And like, I didn't know that I wanted to be that reporter until my news director forced me to cover a lot of that stuff as a young reporter. And so I applied this narrative style that I was studying and that I wanted to be, and I kind of mixed the two. And and that's basically how I would describe my style as a reporter, as an investigative reporter today is like a hard news narrative style. And I learned a lot from uh, Wayne Friedman, who you may or may not know, and maybe some listeners do, um, big time. Emmy award-winning reporter out in San Francisco who's been recognized for his writing like 52 times with Emmys and Murrows and all this kind of stuff. Um, he used to do seminars at, at all the, you know, big journalism conferences and stuff. And so I learned a lot from him and, and his writing style and the idea of a universal truth and all the stories that we tell. And if you don't make them relatable, no one cares. So every time that I'm out on a story, whether it's a general assignment turn or an investigative piece, 
I'm usually looking for that kind of like universal truth, that narrative hook that's going to make people care about a story. And so that's how I've always approached everything that I've written, um, regardless if it's investigative or just a hard news general assignment term. Yeah, that's so good that you do that. I mean, I think my personal belief is I, I do think a lot of times reporters lose sight of that like universal truth concept or, you know, put simply why do I care? Like, why would, why did, why does like, why would the bulk of people care about this particular shooting or this particular fire or whatever? And, um, and sometimes it's challenging. I mean, sometimes you're kind of like, uh, they kind of don't care, but like you have to come up with something and, um, you know, whether it's just connecting to the emotion or, you know, something they can relate to. But I think reporters like get into this mode of like just banging out scripts and, you know, especially general assignment reporters. And it's like, yeah, it can be, it can be a, uh, a, a dangerous game, you know, cause the more you do it, you just, you kind of forget about that, that concept of like, yeah, but wait a minute, let's take 10 steps backwards here. Like, you know, you might want to leave out this one fact, but inject this extra piece of emotion and people will remember that story a lot longer sometimes. Um, yeah, it's, it's hard. You can't do it with every story. I mean, like I'm a crime reporter, right? I'm a crime investigative guy. And so like I'm covering crime every day today. I covered crime. I covered crime today, yesterday, the day before. And, you know, I'm not sure if you've heard, though, but Baltimore has a little bit of a crime problem. <laughs> so like it gets a bit repetitive. And, you know, sometimes you get jaded and sometimes the story just isn't there because a lot of people don't want to go on camera or they don't talk. But, you know. It's. I usually try to find a thread or a piece or something, and I try to really write it up so that people understand that this is not just, you know, your standard script. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. uh, it, sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not. I mean, it's also very obvious if you're trying to force it too. You got to know, and that's you know, being in the business as long as I've been now, I I kind of know when I can do that and when I can't. So. Yeah. Um, it's just a matter of what elements you're gathering, what you, what you, what you're able to, to put on tape at the end of the day, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so reporting in Baltimore, you're, you cover a lot of crime, you're an investigative reporter. This is kind of like a mm-hmm. trite question, but I'll ask, I think I've even asked you this in person, but for the listeners out there, you know, a lot of people have said that the, the HBO television show, the wire is like one of the greatest crime <laughs> dramas of all time. Um, what is it? David Simon created it. Um, are you into it? Are you into it or do you, do you love it? Uh, the wire or the The wire, the wire, the wire. I Okay. So I have, I have a story about this. So like I watched the wire as it aired on HBO back in whenever it aired in the early mid two thousands. Right. And I was like, this show was incredible. And I lived in Memphis. I was a reporter in Memphis at the time. So I was like, this show was incredible. And then I got the job here. And then I worked for two years here and then I watched it again, right? I just kind of binged it. And I was like, yeah, this is still great. And wow, this, this, this thing is, this is exactly what Baltimore is. And by that time, I had known the players. I had covered big trials. I had covered big crimes. And like, I can tell the characters that David Simon was talking about were real life characters. You know, like the, the mayor was the governor now and like the city council president was the mayor now. And like all this stuff, I was like, oh, it all makes sense. And so then I fast forward to now and I'm watching it now for the third time. And it's a completely different experience. It's um, it's brilliant on a lot of levels and it gets this city on a lot of levels that like, as I, as I kind of get more experienced in, in reporting in this town, it, I experience it on different levels. It's, it really is an incredible um, piece of work. 
Yeah, I mean, it's critically acclaimed. I wasn't sure you. I wasn't sure that that answer was going to go that way. I thought you were going to say that, you know, when you watch it the second time, it didn't hold up. So that's interesting to hear. No, um, it holds up. It holds up even better every time <laughs> that you watch it because you have a you have a different set of like experiences behind it. You know, right. now I'm like a veteran investigative guy in this town. Like I've seen how the police department works. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. I've well, yeah. How, yeah it's, I mean, if they, if they did a, if they did a reboot of it, you could practically be a character in it theoretically. I mean, you well, know it's, I mean? Fun, it's funny you mentioned that. So like the, um, so we, I, you know, uh, we don't, uh, uh, so we had a, a really bad murder here two years ago. Uh, we had a, a, a homicide cop that was uh, killed, right? No cops, tragically are you know it this happens quite a bit right but homicide detectives are never usually killed in the job you know they're plainclothes guys that are investigating they're not like frontline patrolmen so that was weird in and of itself and that story kind of evolved because they never found anyone who did it and then there's this theory that it might be suicide and it's been it's been like kind of holding this city hostage for a couple of years and so hbo is starting to come around and do a documentary on that case um, and a wildly like corrupt ring of officers um, called the gun trace task force, which, you know, was a, la- a big, huge story last year too. So, so HBO was kind of doing a big documentary on it and they ended up following, um, you know, they'd been all the press conferences and then through all of that, they ended up following me quite a bit um, wow. and, another, and, a print, and a print reporter in town as well. And the, the executive producer of the, of the documentary um, is a character on the wire. She was a character on the wire and now she's doing, now she's producing documentaries. Oh, wow. Um, so like, yeah. So like I, one of the, <laughs> I sat down for like, you know, they follow you around. They've been following you around for like uh, eight months, nine months now. Um, but then you have like your formal interview where you like, you sit and talk to them for like three hours, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's, I don't know when that's going to, that's going to air. I know they're kind of toward the end of their production now. Um, and I, and I, I don't know when that's going to hit HBO, but, um, I should be part of it as I'm told. So that's kind of interesting. And it's, and it's, you know, produced by one of the actors that was in the wire. So, you know, it's, uh, art imitates life, whatever that saying is. Right. Or yeah. something like that. Right. Um, so do you know what fun. it's, we'll it's going to be called? Uh, no, I have no idea. Um, I know that they're like looking at dailies now and kind of figuring out how they're going to, I think it's still, I think it's still a year or so away. Um, I don't think they have a working, I don't know that they have a working title for it. Um, but this particular, um, Sonia Stone is the producer. She also, she was a detective Greg's on the wire. Um, but she also did a documentary, I think two years ago called Baltimore rising. I think it was called. Um, which was critically acclaimed and on HBO, and that was about the riots in 2015 and and um, and the interplay between the police department and the community and all that kind of stuff. Hmm. Wow. Um, I guess it won't be called just like The Wire Two. That wouldn't make sense. Um, no, I don't. I don't think so. <laughs> um, <laughs> they're just incredibly lazy. Um, yeah, that sounds. That's very cool. Um, did your, was your station okay with that? Like, did you have to get clearance for that or did they balk at that at all? I did. I asked them, I said, you know, listen, this documentary crew wants to follow me around. Um, and, uh, I said, you know, I'm not doing anything that I normally wouldn't do as a reporter. They're just kind of like documenting it. Um, and I, you know, I kind of kept them abreast of the whole situation. I didn't, 
I didn't like they wanted to come in the station and see me work and everything. I tried, I avoided that because I don't want to disrupt my newsroom with that kind of stuff, you know. But um, no, I mean, they, they seem to be totally cool with it. Good. Yeah. I mean, I've had some stations that just were really tight about that kind of thing um, and uh, would not go for it, but that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, um, so you're, you've been at WMAR, like, like we've said a couple times here, um, 11 years since you left uh, Memphis. And that's kind of a, it's always a, like a, uh, what's the word? Like a, there's a term for this, like a stripe on your badge or a, a I don't, there's a term for it, you know, like a positive thing whenever an opposing, you know, like a competition news director uh, plucks you, you know, and, and picks you and, and wants you to be on their team. Um, yeah. you know, I've always viewed that as like kind of cool, actually, that theoretically like, there's this tough competition and like I always have this mindset of like, oh, they must hate me. It's like, no, they, they probably just respect your, your game, your skills, you know, if you're good enough. Um, they just hate that you're not on their team, really. Um, so that's kind of cool that that's what happened and, and got you from Memphis to Baltimore. And so you've been in Baltimore a long time now, um, quite a while. Um, and what's really exciting um, in your life the last couple of years is the book. Um, so Brian yeah. has uh, authored a, a, a new book called uh, The Long Blink the long blink and uh it's based on a, a story that you covered right yeah i was uh i was assigned this story back in 2010 so um, you know nine years ago now um it wasn't uh, it's funny i almost didn't tell the story like uh we had a, a a really horrible truck crash where the the tractor trailer driver fell asleep in the wheel and like and just, and just barreled into this family killed the, the the wife and and um critically injured the two the two boys the wife was a wildly popular professor here at, at a baltimore area university so it was a it was a huge story around here the accident happened as they were driving back to baltimore from ohio so it happened in ohio but um it was this huge popular story around here because this the, you know the whole the the whole uh community was was pouring out to support these folks. Uh, the husband wasn't in the car that day, so he was back here working. So he wakes up to this like whole new reality of, of what just happened. Um, and like uh, my news director uh, called me in the office and she's like, you know, he, he knows someone here at the station. He wants to, he wants to tell the story. And I was like, uh, at that point I was two years into my contract here. So I was like, ah, you know, I originally was like, I don't know if I'm the right guy for it. I was like, I, you know, I was trying to establish myself as like a, a crime and grime, courts and fire kind of like investigative reportery type guy, you know. And this was truly an important story, but not really, you know, my lane, so to speak. And she said, I don't really have to care what you think, do the story. So <laughs> um, I called this, I called this uh, you know, father and widower up and we, we talked on the phone and I instantly realized this man was was there was there was more than just a story here you know um and so i followed this family story over over a couple of years i won my first emmy um telling a story i won my first edward r murrow award telling this guy this family story um and so i knew it was a very popular story and every time i did something you know put it on the web it went crazy people were drawn to the emotional uh impact of of what happened and so after a few years, um, he asked me to write a book. And I said, I think you're freaking crazy. There is no way I can write a book. I said, the longest thing I ever wrote was like an eight minute on-air piece about a serial killer. I was like, I don't know that I can do a book. And so I kind of put him off, put him off, put him off. And finally, I kind of thought about it. I said, you know, what if I think about this as like, if I, if I, if, 
I take all the chapters and I outline them, right? And I, I treat each chapter like an in-depth, you know, long form piece like I do on TV, you know, hmm. that if I, if I bite it off like that, then that can do that, you know? And so I, I, I outlined it all and I, and I kind of realized what the interviews I would need and who I'd need to talk to and where I need to travel to get the information, all this kind of stuff. And so um, that's how I did it. And it took me about three years to write um, and uh, kind of followed this story arc from like this crash, this horrible crash to like, um, to the ending, which is, I don't want to give it away because it's kind of like, it's explosive and emotional, but I like the reader to kind of get there organically. I don't really want to give much away, but, um, it's really, it's, 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 a, it's an ending you'll never see coming, but it's an incredibly emotional story. And at the end of it, uh, the elevator pitch that I tell people it's about is it's basically surviving trauma. Um, it's about like raising two children that will never be the same, losing the love of your life. Um, and it's about trying to find a purpose and then ultimately forgiveness uh, in that in that in that trauma in order to piece together, you know, what's left of your old life in order to help move your family into a new life. Um, and that's the kind of story arc that I that I told it in, uh, because I think, as you know, Bo, the, the amount of victims we speak to. Mm. Um, and these in violent crimes or crashes or whatever throughout our career, there are just some people, there are, there are some people that just kind of like wear it and, and can pivot into something so much bigger and more meaningful than just, you know, than what it can be. I mean, I don't know that I have the strength to do that kind of stuff, but like mm -hmm. I would have curled up in a ball and hated the world for the rest of my life if I had lost my wife and, and, my child was maimed and handicapped the rest of his life because some guy fell asleep at the wheel. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I would be bitter about it, right. but this guy became an advocate. He's on Capitol Hill every year, lobbying um, Congress to, to help with trucking regulations to make the roads safer. He's, he's become this incredible champion of his disabled son. And he's, he started all these nonprofits to like help, people with disabilities kind of, uh, you know, maneuver through life. And, um, wow. and it's just, the, he's just, he's just this incredible guy that turned this horrible thing into this like tapestry to honor his dead wife and to like champion his son. Hmm. And it's just, it's when you meet this man, you're just like, Jesus, I don't know how you did this, but like, <laughs> so ultimately that, <laughs> that's, that's kind of what made me want to write about him. And, um, and yeah, I, you know, it, it took a few years to get done, but it just got published, uh, just was released um, in September. So uh, I really, I mean, I hope people enjoy it. I hope people kind of get out of it what at least half of what I was able to put into it. And I, I hope I did a, a good job in telling this man's story because I think it's, it's an important issue, but it's also an important kind of like every man's story as well. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. I, um, it just showed up at my house um, a day or two ago, and I, I'm really looking forward to uh, diving into it. Um, it sounds really deep and uh, fantastic. So, um, so let, let's talk about this a little bit more. Let's dive into it deeper. Um, you know, I'm very, very fascinated by this. Um, like I said, kind of in that awkward intro, um, I think a lot of reporters have probably considered, either considered themselves like, oh, I should write a book about this story that they've done or someone's told them, you know, Hey, you should write a book about this. And 
yeah. you know, probably all of us consider ourselves like good writers, um, or at least better at writing than, than math usually. But then again, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but then again, writing a, you know, minute 15 package script is, you know, very different than writing a 315 page book. Um, so I know you talked about how that was daunting at first, and then you kind of did a good job of describing how you created a mental model that helped you um, suss that out and, you know, build the confidence to do it. But, you know, I, in brief, you know, I'm going to ask you a number of questions here. Um, so first of all, like you were writing this while you were still working a full-time job, a full-time job that's yeah. a pretty stressful one, you know, a crime slash investigative reporter in Baltimore, Maryland. So how did you find the time? Like, were you doing this in the mornings, the nights or, or when? So I had a, I had a very strict routine. Um, <laughs> like I would, um, I wouldn't write during the week because I, I, for, for me, and I don't know if others are like this too, but like, I feel like I have a finite amount of creativity in every day, you know? And like, if I blow through that, then I can't, I, I just don't want to, I can't come home and, and create more, you know? Yeah. So like what I would do would I would, uh, after my week was done on a Friday, I would come home. And I would go to the gym and I'd kind of like work out the stress of the week and kind of mentally reset. Right. And then I would come home and then I would go down to my office and I'd pour myself a glass of whiskey. My dog would be there at my feet. And then I would just, that's when I would bang it out and I would write for hours for like, you know, some nights I had it, some nights I was killing it. I would write for four or five hours, you know, and then some nights I was like, uh, I was forcing it. So after I, would, I would quit like after two hours, you know, um, but what's that's kind of what I, what's the uh, latest you would stay up doing that, you know, that you can remember oh, like two, three, something like that. You know, I'm okay. a night owl. I'm not a morning person. I can stay up till three or four o'clock in the morning. It is not a problem for me. Yeah. Um, I, I don't I'm the same, do anything. I'm the same way for better or worse. I was just curious if you were going to say like, Oh, you know, 7am, that type of thing. Um, you know, no, feeling, yeah, no, feeling no, the like, flow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, like that's a long effect. After a while, you got you got to just kind of get up. You know what I mean? You got to get up and relax. Sure. Know? But um, if, well, let me ask you, you know, really quickly. Sorry, um, I, I keep cutting you off. I apologize. Um, but I, I'm just so Fun. curious about all this. Um, you know, you you not to get too personal, but I mean, I, I think you like recently got married, right? I did in oh. uh, well, three years, three and a half. Oh, years okay. Right Sorry. So some semi recently, but. I mean, what did your girlfriend, wife, uh, you know, I mean, were, were you seeing her on these Friday nights or no? I mean, because it sounds like. Yeah, you I know. It's funny because I we started um, dating right when I had agreed to do this. Um, oh, wow. And I, we, that's when we first started dating. So it's like uh, 20, beginning of 2014, I think. 2013. I don't remember. Um, and so I told her, I said, listen, um, I'm, I'm going to endeavor this thing, which means I need my Friday nights. And so we can't see each other on Friday nights. And she was like, okay. She goes, that's cool. That's awesome. I don't care. And I was like, cool. (laughs) And that was it, you know? And so she left me alone on Friday nights and, or I had my Friday nights to myself. And, you know, that's when I would do most of my writing. I mean, there were some times where I had to like, you know, I had to use the entire weekend to get something done because I was up against the, uh, you know, a, a deadline or something. But um, she was remarkably understanding about it. And honestly, as we grew to become, you know, fiance and then married, there were several times along the way where I was like, I can't do this. This is ridiculous. Why am I? Why am I wasting my time on this? I'm never going to get published. And there's no way this is going to happen for me. And she was a rock the entire time. And she believed in the project. And she believed in my writing. And she believed in everything else. And 
I credit her a lot in a lot of the dedications and, and, and the acknowledgments in the book because without her, it absolutely would not have happened. Wow. So she's been super supportive about the whole thing throughout the, throughout the process. Yeah, that's amazing. So the, the bulk of the writing, though, happened on, on those Friday nights, you know, so really one usually, night a week. Yeah, usually I would, uh, wow. yeah. I mean, there were some times where I had to take off work and go, I got to travel to like Kansas City. I had to, I had to travel around a little bit for it and do some, um, do some research. Uh, I did a significant amount of interviews um, with the main character who lives in Baltimore, so that wasn't a big deal. But like, there were like, you know, there were several times where I'd sit there and like, you know, it's his story. So I had, a, I, had a, I had to really grill him for like a couple of hours on a couple of nights, you know, to get the details out and recorded all the interviews and you, took notes. And you, so you interviewed him in person every time? Every time. So I, like I said, I, I kind of sketched out um, each chapter and what I would need for each, each chapter. And I would go back to him at the, at the beginning of each chapter and I would do a fresh interview with him about that time period. Oh wow! Um, and yeah, that's 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 how I thought. I mean, that, that's I was trying to mimic as closely as I could our daily routine, you know. So that kind of I, I so I felt comfortable doing it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then everything else kind of came, kind of was came came off of that. So like, I think I had to travel to Kansas City once to go to his attorney's office to go through the case file, which was like three or four like legal boxes full of stuff locked myself in his conference room for like two days and took a ton of notes. Um, we ended up interviewing the driver, um, which is a complicated and incredible story that I'll tell you after you read it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but we had to travel for that. Um, so, so when you, yeah, say, when you just, say we, does that mean that your wife came with you or like your editor? No, like no, no, no. No, my, uh, the main, the main. So, I, so the teaser is that like, as we were writing this story, I realized I said, um, I said, I said to Ed, the, the main character, I said, I'm not going to write a prescriptive nonfiction book about the trucking industry. I, I don't want that. I need you, people need to know that you, how you survived all this and, and what you did. So he agreed to that. So we were telling the story along the way as a story arc, but I always knew from the beginning he wanted, he told me, he's like, I want the story, the side of the story from the trucker too. And I said, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, we would, we would obviously try to get that done i wasn't i i wasn't like um i didn't know that if we were i didn't know we we were going to be able to do that because he was in prison for a little bit because of this and then he got out and you know i I was like well you know we need to make sure this guy talks to us because he's part of the story you know it's journalistically and not just to get that side but it's also something that i think that he needed for some sort of closure, you know? Mm-hmm. And so we travel and he, they both agreed to do the interview and they, they agreed that I would be there to broker it. And so we went out there um, to his house and we, we sat there and I brokered the interview between these two men. And so he actually um, interviewed can, the man that essentially killed his wife. Yes, I did. I interviewed him on he, behalf of the main character, but he was, standing oh, okay. there as I did it. So by, by broker. Okay. So you did conduct the interview though. Okay. I did. Oh yeah. I had my laptop, had my microphone up. I like, we all knew what yeah. we were doing. And what, what kind and of, so I did. I, oh, go ahead. Uh, no, it's just, uh, so I could tell you unequivocally, Bo, that I mean, I've, we have done, I mean, how many, in, in you know, how many interviews have you done in your career? Right. You came and counted like thousands, right? Yeah. Over there, sometimes 2000, the, yeah. 
Right. There are big ones like that you prepare for. And then there's your everyday kind of like, hey, what happened here? Did you see this? Did you see that? Right. You know, all that kind of bullshit. So like this was unequivocally the most like emotional, stressful, um, like mind blowing. I, I mean, I don't I've run out of adjectives to describe how this interview went, um, but it's all laid out at the end of that book. And it's a it's it's an explosive kind of twist that I don't think readers see coming, but I don't want to say too much more about it because I think it's, I think it's for the reader. I think they need to organically experience it for themselves. Yeah. But. No, let's not, let's not uh, have any spoilers on the podcast. Um, no, no, no. That's my big tease. There you go. Yeah. You can, read it. You can buy it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. You can <laughs> yeah. Um, absolutely. Yeah. So people can go on Amazon and get, where, where do you want them to get it from? Does it matter? Or I mean, is there a place uh, that's better? It doesn't like, it published, uh, I, I mean, the publishing, I mean, it doesn't make a difference whether you get it in the store or online. I mean, I mean there are store, there are plenty of uh, stores carrying it on shelves. There is, but I mean, the easiest way for most people, I guess, is Amazon or barnesandnoble.com. And it's on both of those. Yeah. Um, so are you in Target? I think you can get it anywhere. Okay. So are you going to be like rich now? No, they, you know, that's a big misnomer. You don't really make any money off books. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you have to be like Stephen King to make money off books, you know? Yeah. Um, I think you have to write, you have to write, you have to have a lot of books, you know, you have to get big advances and that kind of stuff. And that doesn't happen for um, a reporter on their first time out, but yeah, who knows? Maybe the second or third, we don't know. So you do have plans for, for more. Well, like I was saying, like you were kind of uh, talking about earlier, it's like, there's this, there's this thing, right? Was if you're a reporter and I think for the true writers among us anyway, that like there are like five or six like back what I call back pocket stories, right? That through your career that you've covered that you go, man, this will make a great freaking book one day, right? If I ever, if I ever had the tenacity to sit down and write one or knew about the publishing industry enough to do it or get lucky enough to get a, a real book deal, like this would be a great story, right? I've had mm. those stories in my career. I mean, I, ha I have like five of them that I think would make a great book. Yeah. Um, this one was not one that I saw coming, but it was the one that presented itself at the time. Mm -hmm. And so now that I was able to do it and that, you know, I was able to go through the whole publishing process and the literary agency process. And there's so much stuff that I had to learn about this industry. That's not our industry that, you know, I, I really had to become a student of. And so it took a while to get the book contract, but I finally got it from, you know, a legit publisher. And then, and then, all this stuff kind of starts happening and now it's out. So I'm like, okay, I've done this once. Now, what if I go back to do one of those other stories that I thought might make a great book? Right. You know what I mean? So yeah. that's kind of where I'm at right now. Well, sometimes, I mean, I think sometimes in life, like 80% or if not 90% of the battle is just like learning the rules of the game. And then once you right. know it, you, you can play it infinitely. But there's right. sometimes a really uphill battle to learning the rules such that many people decide just not to learn them. Um, and publishing is a completely, it's just this, it's a completely different industry. It doesn't work at all like what our industry does. And our industry works weirdly too, you know, but like, yeah. it's, uh, it was, it was a complete and utter education for me to go through that process. And cause I start from scratch. I didn't know anything about it. I researched, I read a ton, you know? Yeah. Um, it, it, it was, it was a full-time job in addition to my full-time job, you know? So let's, let's dive into that a little bit and try to keep it as, as, you know, brief as possible. Cause I'm sure you could talk sure. about this. You uh -huh. could probably give a hours long talk just about the publishing process, but, um, 
So what I want to do is kind of like talk in like in order of, of uh, you know, the cliff notes, very short cliff notes of like a minute on each topic of, of the process. Okay. So, you know, I would start with number one is when, you know, from my perspective, whenever you kind of agreed with the main character that you would write the book. So what I'm mm -hmm. curious is, is like, what is the next thing you did? Is it that you started writing chapters, like working on a manuscript? Or did you write an outline first um, and then start looking for a literary agent? I wrote an outline first and okay. then I started, then I immediately started writing a manuscript. Now, quick side note, if you're for nonfiction, generally speaking, you write a proposal, which is like a 60 page document, right? Of right. like all this stuff, like what, what's the book about? Obviously a synopsis, yeah. you have to have like a, a, a sales pitch and mm -hmm. you have to tell them what your platform is and who you are and why you can write the book. And then, and then, and then you write, like at least you include the first chapter and then mm -hmm. you send that out to a bunch of literary agents and they go, Hey, I love this idea. I'm going to represent you on this. And then they clean up your proposal and then they send it out to a bunch of publishing houses in New York or wherever. And then they get a big publisher to say, great. I love this book. They purchased the contract. And then you're, then you, then you write for the next wherever long their, their okay. deadlines are. And then yeah. that's your okay. nonfiction book. Yeah, sorry. That's but that's what I fiction, thought was the process. So right. it wasn't it was yours. Yeah. So I thought fiction. My understanding was that fiction you you have to present a manuscript first. Correct. In nonfiction, right. you you don't. You, you do the proposal. proposal, and then they correct kind of give you an advance, and then you write it and hope that you right. you've that's make those generally how work. that's generally how okay. it works. But, but, but my, is, is your, my, your book is nonfiction. In my research is your book it fiction is or non it's narrative. Okay. It's narrative nonfiction. So like I, in my research, when I was looking up all that stuff, I read somewhere that it was better for a debut author to have the manuscript written first. Okay. And I was like, okay, I'll do that. That is not generally the rule. I did it backwards, but I'm glad that I did it backwards Ooh, because okay. I needed to know that I could that I could write a manuscript before I get a contract to tell me to write a manuscript, right? I didn't uh, know I didn't know anything about it. Okay. So I okay. wanted to write it first. Got but it. so that made more sense to me. Now my next book out, you know, the next idea I have, if I'm gonna write a I write a proposal and hopefully that will get purchased and optioned and then I will write it from scratch with that editor. But uh, I did it backwards here, but it was good that I did because as a, as being a debut author I, the book deal that I ended up getting, the editor wanted the full manuscript before she committed. And so it worked out for me. Oh, wow. But yeah. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. So, okay. So you wrote, you know, you came to this tough decision. Okay. You know what? I'm actually going to, going to do this thing, I think. And you start writing the outline and you broke it down and thought, okay, I'll treat it like I'm just doing a series of news packages, you know, in-depth pieces and string them together and tie them to weave them together and you started working on the the manuscript because you thought that would help to do that first. And you're doing these Friday nights and, you know, tons of research and travel and interviewing this man over and over and drinking whiskey on Friday nights. <laughs> Lots and of whiskey. Yeah. So how long did it take you but until, you know, from the day that you wrote the first words on the page of the actual manuscript to the day that you, you know, closed your eyes and went to bed that night and thought, God damn it, I'm done, you know, or thank God I'm, I'm done. First draft, the end of first draft. Is that what you're talking? Yeah, the first draft, yeah. Or soup to nuts, like, hey, it got bought and... No, no, the, a, the end of the first draft, like, okay, I've written the manuscript, you know, it needs work. About but like, two and a half, 
years, right? 2013. No, okay. three years. It took me three, took years. Me three okay. years. So yeah. during that time, were you already looking for literary agents or no? No, I didn't look for a literary agent until after the manuscript was done. Um, that's when I started what they say querying agents, where you got to put together a query letter, which is a one-page pitch. Um, you got to research all these. There's a million literary agents in New York and elsewhere, and you got to figure out which one is the best match for your style and your topic. Mm-hmm. So I was looking for people that that represented journalists, um, narrative nonfiction, um, and that sort of thing. And uh, you know, I created a spreadsheet on my computer, and I would query these these uh, these literary agents, and I got a lot of rejections, like most people do. Um, and after a few rejections, I said, okay. Uh, maybe I'm querying too early. Let me get, then I hired a professional editor to look at my manuscript and he suggested some big wholesale changes. And um, he said, I'm onto something here. Just maybe we should do this. Maybe we should do that. So I spent another bunch of time um, tweaking that proposal. How long? I mean, How long um, you... 2015 is when I got done with it. And then I think late 2015, I had a professional editor look at it. And so I think about another six months. So by mid 2016, I was back out querying agents again. So and, was it, um, how, how hard was it to have, you know, cause you had that manuscript and clearly you thought it was good enough at that point because you were querying agents. So to have this professional editor come in, I mean, of your own volition, cause you hired him or yeah. her, but to have them come in and say, ah, you, you got to kind of switch things around. I mean, how difficult was that? If at all, I was fine with it because I, I didn't I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Um, so okay. I, I was totally fine with it. I mean, I had everyone I know read it. And they're like, oh, that's great. I'm like, yeah, I don't. I, like, <laughs> I don't know what the hell I'm doing here. Yeah. And so I had a professional letter look at it. And he said, listen, first off, he's like, you have got the chops to write nonfiction. This is a great story. He's like, I would just add this or change this around. And it was developmental editing, which we don't usually get at work, right? We get like basically line editing, right? Like right. take this out, not this, yeah. if that, right? We're getting, this is like a developmental, developmental editing. So this guy looked at it and said, no, I would move this here, move that here. I mean, they weren't, you know, terrible changes. It was just like, oh yeah, I get that. That makes a lot of sense. But it took you six oh, like, months to, that, yeah. to, but it took you to, six months to implement them. Right. Well, he... He, he said, you should, ha- you should stop the story here and put more about this in there. So I had to go back and like, it was, it was significant rewriting on my part, but any, I think what I've read and what I've, some of the authors I've spoken to that there's significant rewriting uh, from, from draft one to draft two to draft three anyway. So yeah. like it was just part, it was just part of the process to kind of smooth the story out. And yeah. that happened again when I, when I signed the book deal and the editor at the, at the publishing house edited me again. And she's like, I hate this chapter, kill it. And let's do this and let's do that. So I mean, you're constantly working on the story, but you know, until it finally goes to print. So how did you find in brief, how did you find the professional editor? Um, there's been a lot of websites out there just to research online. And I found a guy that uh, I had been reading his blog for a while. Um, and he said, Hey, listen, I'm open to submissions if anyone needs an editor. And so we contact, I contacted him and he was, you know, kind of a name in the business. And so, um, I felt confident in that and he How helped me tremendously. Did that cost? I don't, I have no, I, I cannot tell you. It was, uh, it was like a few years ago now. I can't remember. It wasn't, it wasn't a ton of money though. Yeah. And he, um, said, he said, I'll get it back to you in two months. And I was like, great. And then like, he got, <laughs> he got it back to me with, 
track changes on word and all sorts of cool stuff. And then we had a phone call and he went over all changes with me and he's like, good yeah. luck. And I was like, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So you implemented his changes over the next six months or whatnot. Yeah. And you, you go back to querying and, and what yeah. happened? Like, tell me about the time when you finally got the literary agent who wanted to work with you. This is a great story. Okay. This is a great story. I'll make it quick. But like you, I don't know if you were there that year. IRE Phoenix is when I got the call. Um, and I, and I, I skipped don't, that one. Yeah. It was like 2017. Is that one I'm thinking? Or 2015. Yeah, I missed that one. Yeah. No, so no, 20, never, 2015 was uh, Philly. Yeah, so it was 2016. It was Phoenix. So I was, so it's June in Phoenix, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, and like, I know, because like, I, I, uh, I had queried a bunch of, of agents and um, I was just kind of like, that was one of my doubting moments where I'm like, I'm not, you know, I was kept, kept getting rejections, rejections and, and the rejections I were getting like, love this, love the writing, love the story. Um, I'm just, I'm not the right person for this right now because of such and such and such and such. And such. Like, this is pain in the ass. And so after, um, so I was in Phoenix and uh, while, the first night there, I got an email from an agent saying, hey, um, send me a few chapters, you know, send me a partial, what they call it, like a part of your manuscript. And I was like, oh, this is exciting. So I sent him, I sent him like a couple chapters, whatever. And then like the, the, you know, the conference starts and you're, you know, kind of buzzing around with people and going to seminars and bing, got another email and one of the seminars said, uh, I like what I'm reading. Send me, send me the rest of it. And I was like, oh shit. So I sent him the rest of it, you know, and I'm kind of like quietly excited, but like, don't want to get too worked up, you know, and, yeah. go, and continuing in the conference or whatever. And, you know, they keep these things so damn cold in, in June, these buildings, these conference centers, you know, like I'm, you're freezing, yeah. freezing. So I was like, and, and you know, it's hot in Phoenix. So I was like, I got to go outside and just, I have to melt down for a little bit. You know, I guess need some heat, you know? Right. So I remember like walking outside and I told nobody, I mean, that, uh, of a couple of close friends at IRE that, you know, you hang out with, I think we, we kind of ran in the same circles, you and I, but like, um, Rachel DePompa, you should have her on this show. She's, she'd be a good one to have too. She's been invited. But yeah. Like, she's, uh, she's yeah, on the, she's, the, the list. Yeah. The queue. She's in the queue. Love her. She's the only one I told. Cause like we go back a ways and I was like, I was like, I think this, like this guy asked me for my full manuscript. I'm like super excited about it. And then, so I went outside to like, kind of like heat up a little bit cause I was freezing. And then I got the email that said, Hey, um, can we talk? And I was like, yeah, he called me right there. had the call right in the middle of the courtyard there at Phoenix. And, um, and he was like, went over the whole thing with me. And he's like, I think maybe we can do this and maybe we can do that. And if you're open to, to these suggestions and working with me, he's like, I'd, I'd like to offer you representation. And I was like, this is fucking amazing. Sorry. This is really amazing. So I was like super excited about it. And, um, you know, we, we kind of went back and forth in the days that followed and, uh, you know, asking questions and me interviewing him as much as he was interviewing me. And, um, what his vision for the book was and all that kind of stuff. And I ended up signing with him and, you know, uh, then we went to work together. And, um, basically after that, he says, all right, but let's put together the proposal. And, uh, we spent six months working on the proposal and then we went on submission. Wow. Six which months. Is a whole other process. Six yeah. months on proposal and then submission is to publishing houses, right? Right. So like for the rest of that year, we worked on really, really making the proposal sing. So, um, I mean, I had written a proposal, but I didn't know what I was doing. So he'd like, 
he, he's like, okay, this is what we need to write now. And I was like, okay, fine, let's write it. So yeah. we wrote this like, this like really good proposal. And then in January, I guess maybe it was November or December of 2016, he went out and started with, they call it submission and they go, they do rounds of it. And first, you know, they do uh, a bunch of different editors at a bunch of different houses um, that he either knows or she knows, or they have connections with, or they think is the right agent for it editor and then um you know then you got to go through the process again like reject or let me see more or whatever um and so the submission process is its own kind of like you know nerve-wracking process as well because now like real publishing houses are looking at your work deciding do we want to publish this book or not yeah so uh when did you let's fast forward to when you got that fateful you know what did the agent call you one day and go hey buddy we got we got a deal you know how did that work no nah, he was an email guy but uh yeah um, <laughs> he was hi brian yeah <laughs> yeah basically and it was very There's dry deal. Too, and i was like i was like um i'm excited about this man you know um <laughs> so yeah we went through a bunch we went through a couple of rounds we spent most of 2017 out on submission and um you know, a, a lot of the rejections that I were getting were, again, love the writing, love the story. We just don't think that we could make it like this big breakout book. And a lot, a lot of the big publishing houses want these like surefire big time books, you know? Yeah. And I, it's, you know, it's, it's not, it's a small story. It's not a big giant, you know, story. And I knew that. So, but we got very close on a couple of really good deals, but nothing really transpired until all of a sudden, like I think it was Halloween of not uh, Halloween 2018 was it I don't remember the date. Um, he sends me an email and he's like we're going to he's like we're going to bid. There's two different publishing houses that want the rights to the manuscript. And I was like, what the? F-? <laughs> I was like, all this rejection, you know. And I'm like, I'm like, this is not going to happen. And all of a sudden, two houses were like bidding over the manuscript. And I was like, uh, okay. <laughs> wow what, what what happens here you know and so long story short um one publisher wanted more of a prescriptive nonfiction. they wanted me to pare back the narrative a little bit they wanted more like you know more about the trucking industry and they wanted it to be like um, a you know that kind of story and then and then this other publisher was like love it as is i think it is a, it is a it is a clean manuscript i love the story i love how you wrote it and I was like, well, this is a no brainer to me. Um, I'm going to go with the, I'm going to go with the publisher who was true to the story that I wrote. And was, um, was the money the same? Yeah. The, the advance was around the same. Um, and so I ended up going with uh, Beller publications, which is, a, which is a small press, but like they're pretty, uh, pretty solid uh, reputation in producing and publishing books of, uh, of that kind of caliber. And so, um, we signed the contract in like, I want to say November, about a year ago. And then, um, and then that process started, um, after that where, you know, you edit with her, with the editor, and then you, you know, you have a publication date and you start kind of moving toward that process. Wow. It's kind of crazy that like, once you sign with them, it still takes another year. Like it's, it's it is, it's so freaking slow. And then you don't hear anything for months and you're like, what's happening? I don't understand. Are they backing out? Are they backing out? 
Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. Like, Hey, do you have an idea for a cover? And like, yeah, I have an idea for a cover. And then like two weeks later, this is your cover. And I'm like, what? What? Then <laughs> there's like this drawing and this artist puts together this cover and you're like, this is beautiful. I love this cover. And then it's like, okay, your publication date is going to be on September 24th. And you're like, Oh, okay. Um, Great. All right, I'm going to send you over some edits. Okay. I'll start editing. It's like this, it's, it moves slow and then it moves really fast and then it moves right. slow and then it moves really fast. Yeah. It's a really odd process. That actually, that part of it actually does remind me a little bit of like the TV news industry when you're trying to get a job in the news director. For some reason, all news directors do not like to communicate with you. You know, it's just like this weird cryptic right. like, hello, and then they send this really friendly email and then you're like, yeah, and you write back and then you don't hear from them for three weeks. And you right. know, it's this yeah. crazy thing. <laughs> and then they're like, actually, can you get on a plane tonight? And you're like, what? Like, you haven't even responded yeah. to me, dude. It's been four weeks. You know, it's, know. it's so wild. But I, I don't know what that, to this day, I don't know what that is. I don't know if that's like a power thing or like, uh, like, like they're just so scattered, you know, with like busyness that they, you know, I don't know what that is, but it just, it just seems like trying to happy. thread the needle between like hiring freezes or something or like, okay, yeah. and now we're going to hire you. Like, well, I don't know. I don't right. Know. That's right. So crazy. Sometimes. That's possible. Um, well, congratulations. I mean, what a, what an effort and, and, you know, just hearing that process, I'm tired. Um, cause that, that's, yeah, like no, a, it's a lot, a shit ton it's of work. Lot. Um, but so you basically started this in, in 2013. Soup to nuts. It took about six years between the concepts, the concepts, the conceptual idea of doing it and then it being on a bookshelf. Wow. Yeah. Which, by the way, I does not get old. Like, you go to the, go into the Barnes and Nobles and there it is. And I'm like, that oh, is that's, that's so crazy. cool. Yeah. All, all that <laughs> yeah. work is, is worth it. And, and frankly, I mean, the book, you know, like our reporting, you know, may change lives. I mean, it may affect someone, you know, I mean, that's just what a, what an eternal reward I imagine that you get from this, you know, it's just, yeah, no, it's, um, it's great. And uh, I, I really enjoyed telling the story. And I, I mean, the, the last couple of months has been kind of a whirlwind because I mean, I was doing, uh, the book festival here in Baltimore, um, getting, you know, some reviews in some magazines around here and doing some book signings. Um, going out to Ohio in a couple of weeks to go do a huge tour out there where, you know, more events, more signings, wow. uh, media, you know, I was able to, you know, but the really good thing about it was being in the business. I was able to kind of like cash in some favors. So a lot of my friends would get me on the air yeah. um, at competing stations and, yeah. um, and podcasts and stuff like that. And so it's been, you know, doing NPR, doing a bunch of different stuff. Ooh, wow. Then you have to hire a, a public, uh, hired a publicist who's pushing it really hard into, in, into wow. different markets now. And so it's a whole process. Yeah. I mean, you, I know you're on at least one big time podcast, um, so far. So yeah, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of selling. It's a lot of selling me. And like, I don't know how you are both. Cause I mean, I listen, a lot of, a lot of us reporters love the promotion part of it. I fucking hate it. I always have. I've never liked it. Yeah. I've always watched. I would drop a big piece and walk away and let this piece speak for itself. I didn't, I never enjoyed POPs. I never liked being in like these, I never liked really heavy promotion runs on stories and stuff. Yeah. I never liked being in it. I always wanted to be story first, not me corrected. I don't, I, I, I didn't want to be in the promo. I wanted it to be story first. You know what I mean? Right. Um, I was always uncomfortable with like, having to, to be like, Hey, this is what I did and blah, blah, blah. Or I changed it. I like, that's never been my approach to it. Mm -hmm. So like now 
that's what I have to do. I have to go out and go, did you have you read my book? Blah, blah, blah. I freaking hate it. I really, really hate it. But I've had to swallow all that because that's what, that's what it's about. Like yeah. it's self-promotion. Like I have an Instagram account, which I never had before a Facebook author account, which I never had before all this pushing that I feel like I'm just, it's all ad nauseum. I'm constantly posting pictures of the book and reviews and a full-time job, man. Yeah. It sounds like, it sounds like a lot. Um, but very cool that uh, you were able to see this through and, and get to this point and, and definitely like a life altering thing that you decided to do. And, and the main character of the story, you know, he must be pretty thrilled that you, um, you know, saw this uh, through and it came to fruition and on, on basically his advice or his, his request. Um, you know, have you ever heard of yeah. the, the author or the podcaster, uh, Tim Ferriss? Yes. Um, people kind of either hate him or love him, um, or don't know about him. I err more on the side of loving him. Um, he kind of has some flaws. Like he's, he's a little, uh, he's kind of a, he's a character, but, um, but, uh, I just, I've been, you know, I've liked a lot of his stuff for many, many years. Um, his first book was called, uh, the four hour work week, which he is the first to admit sounds like a scam book or something, but, um, (laughs) but yeah, he has a podcast that he started around 2011 and, it's partially what inspired me to do this one, um, which follows a similar format. But anyway, the point of this, the point of bringing him up and, and pivoting a little bit is just that um, when he was when he was marketing, I think it was his first book. I forget if someone gave him this idea or if he came up with it. But you know, this was back in 2006 or 2007, so very very different, you know, technological and cultural and societal time point than than we're in now in 2019. But he went out and like in San Francisco and in like New York city went to Barnes and Noble, like on major corners, like the major Barnes and Noble stores and, and bought out his own book, um, quietly, like kind of secretly. Um, I forget exactly how it was done secretly, but you know, just kind of quickly, you know, went in and said, Hey, um, you know, do you have this book? Yeah, we have it. Um, how many copies do you have? Uh, we have 45, you know, I don't know, or we have, you know, whatever. And he was like, okay, I'll take them all. And it was like some story about like, creating some sort of like demand. So then like people would go in and be like, do you have it? And they'd be like, well, we did, but we're literally sold out of it. I don't know. It's some weird story like that, but it always, always stuck with me. It's kind of like a, like a cheap trick, you know, essentially. So I don't recommend that you do that, but, um, it's, uh, you could, um, well, I mean, I bought a copy, so there's one. Um, but I don't think Amazon. Yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm happy. I, and I, I appreciate the support. I, really do. <laughs> I don't think Amazon's going to sell out anytime soon. Um, although I hope they, they do for they, your sake. They did. I, they, did they did sell out. They, did they sold really? out the first day. Yeah, I that is swear, awesome. I, uh, like um, we had a the library here did a huge event for the lot the launch night, which was great. Ooh. So we had a big speaking series. Yeah, it was that it was sick. awesome. Wow. So it's all it's already... all about knowing. But you know how it is. Like it's like it's all about knowing people in the industry that you know. Like they're like, oh, a local reporter wrote a book is a big deal, you know. And yeah. so they're like, uh, so they had a beautiful launch night around us, which coincided with the opening, the reopening of this beautiful building that they just restored downtown Baltimore. It's a gorgeous library. And like, so we had this really big event and there was some media around it before. And like, I'm sitting there before they were introducing me on the stage and to do the talk. And I was like, I looked at the Amazon page and it was like, there are only 18 left. There are only 10 left. There are only, and then it sold out. And I was like, Oh, that's, I don't know how many copies they had, 
but that's awesome, you know. Yeah, that is really that was cool. cool. Yeah, absolutely. But I have no idea. I have no idea how it's doing. I don't. You're not. You don't really know until you get like royalty checks, and so they say the first kind of check-in is usually six months. The publisher will tell you, hey, this is how many units you sold. So I haven't been. I've been trying not to get too high or too low based on right whatever metrics that Amazon wants to give me. You know. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, it's good. You just you know just keep your head down and just you know hope for the best and uh, you you put in the work. So. Yeah got to believe in it. And, you know, promotion is important, even though you, you might hate it, but you know, it, it can go a long way. Um, it has the same, one of the same words as uh, the Malcolm Gladwell book blink, which is like a bestseller. So if people confuse it for that, it might, also... I hope they do. <laughs> I hope they do. The long blink. What the hell? Um, yeah. Oh, wait a minute. It's way better. It's much better. I, I love it. Um, <laughs> probably the case. Um, yeah, well, I'm very excited to read it, and um, I encourage you know everyone listening to this to go ahead and buy it because number one, what do you have to lose? Number two, you heard what a cool story. You know, you just got the behind the scenes look at what went into making this book, and and also it sounds fantastic. Um, and also, you know, it's very cool I think to just support an, another fellow you know local news reporter and media person um, who put in a ton of work and you know kind of followed a dream and did something that I think a lot of us would love to do. Probably few of us have like the courage, time and effort and gumption to do it. But um, a lot of us would love to do it. Well, and- it's funny because what I, what I would like to say is like that, like when, you know, we met at IRE, I'm sure most of the people that you talk to on this podcast, you know, as you were saying earlier, go to IRE, but um, every year that we went, I, you know, I always went to the seminar titled, you know, how to make your story into a book. Um, and it, you know, I would always kind of disappear and go, I'm going to go to that seminar. And I went every year that I've been in IRE and I credit that seminar for at least proving to myself or proving to me that like, I can do this. Like it gave me kind of the basic working knowledge of how to start thinking that I might be able to do it, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, and so that, that was developed out of IRE as well. Cause I know that there's a lot of us walking around that have covered stories that, have made an impact on us or the, or a community or something they think could be fleshed out into a book. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm here to tell you that it's, it's possible. Um, I didn't know that it was, I, if you asked me six years ago, I, if you asked me two years ago, I would have been like, I've, I've just wasted my time, <laughs> but, but like, it's just, um, it's, it's possible, you know, it's about, it's about finding the right story and, and kind of, you know, the time to be able to devote to it. But it's, uh, it's, it's, to me, it's, it's super rewarding. It's, it's as rewarding, if not more than some of the stories I've been able to tell over the years. I guess it's also about finding a partner who's willing to not see you on Friday nights. Yeah. <laughs> I still hold on to those Friday nights, even after we're married though. <laughs> like those are my writing. nights. I'm writing. I'm, I'm at the <laughs> Orioles game, but I, trust me, I'm writing. That's, that's right. That's right. I'll uh, just give me, let me have my whiskey and the dog and uh, you know, <laughs> give me some time. Keeps you sane, maybe, but um, no, I mean, a ton of support, obviously, from your wife and and I'm sure family and other people as well, friends and and uh, all of that stuff is very important. Well, um, I, I kind of want to pick your brain about this um, offline, uh, outside of the podcast, a little bit more because um, I, I I honestly have aspired to, um, I mean, who hasn't? But I, I have also aspired to 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 write a book um, about a series of stories that I did and have uh, delved into the process a bit. Um, in, in fact, hired a, um, a professional editor um, to go over the outline. 
Um, so oh, good. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm on the road, but um, I've kind of stalled out a bit um, on motivation and stuff like that. So this is kind of inspiring. And uh, I hope to try to channel some of this energy um, and, and use it for my own uh, project. But um, yeah, but this has been awesome. Very, very cool. Um, this episode is pretty much unlike any of the prior episodes that I've done on this podcast. Um, oh, man, I was going to do like the, the rapid fire reportery question. Oh, you want to do them? Ready for All right. You. All right yeah. Let's do it. Let's do it. I was going to I was going to bow out of it. But you you've uh, I could be. But first of all, I would be happy to, to help you in any way I can in your endeavor into writing the book. Because I know if I had someone like that, like working that was available to me, I would have crushed that resource. So I am, I am here to talk to you about it. If, but get, let, let's move on to these reporter questions you ask because I'm very All right. excited. Hell yeah, we'll do them. I was, you, you <laughs> caught me. I was gonna skip them. I, uh, I skip them whenever we, you know, we talk about something else or go along on something. But uh, let's do it. Let's do it. All right. So you've probably already heard a bunch of these, and so I might have to switch it up I've a bit. I've heard some. I've heard some. Yeah. I have to switch it up a bit, but. Um, I remember you being in, in fairly good shape. Um, pretty, pretty good biceps. What's your, what's your, uh, preferred method of working out? Um, I just changed that. I went from, uh, I used to just kind of go to the gym or whatever, um, and just do regular Jimmy stuff. Um, but I just changed up and I started a new routine with a new trainer. Um, it's called OPEX and I think it's in select cities around Baltimore, on the, uh, around the country. Uh, there's one here in Baltimore where, uh, it's a limited membership kind of situation and you always have a trainer on the floor who is kind of like looking after you and then he, they, um, they design your programs each week. So you have a new program every week and, um, all maintained to try and get to your goals and stuff like that. So, How do you spell it? um, O P E X. Um, I, it's only in certain cities. It's, it's like this kind of new thing that's kind of catching on, but my trainer is awesome and oh. you know, and when you called tonight and said, like, hey, can you push back to A15? I was like, uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> I'm running late tonight, so it's fine. Nice. Um, yeah, no, that's uh, so usually three days a week there. And then uh, when it's warm out, which it is now no longer, um, I usually run two, three times a week with the dog. Got it. Um, okay. Um, what is your favorite restaurant in Baltimore? You can only eat at one restaurant the rest of your life in Baltimore or else you wow. die instantly, where would you go? Oh, wow. One? Yeah, just one restaurant. <sighs> okay. Um, all right, I'm going to have to go. Is a, There's a restaurant called Hirsch's, and it's in my neighborhood, and it's uh, got uh, – it's Italian and um, authentic pizzas. It's amazeballs. Wow. How do you spell it? Hershey's H E R S H S apostrophe S. Yeah, it's uh, if you're ever in Baltimore. Um, I know most people stay on the Inner Harbor and they go to the you know Phillips and all this other chainy stuff around. It's easy, but you got to get into the neighborhoods in the city, and the the food is insane. Nice, but yeah, that's that's my favorite place. That's my that's one of my go to places. Okay, what is your uh, preferred method of um, ingesting caffeine? coffee and um coffee and if i don't get it like soon as i'm up it's uh, you don't want to be around me it's like the first thing that has to happen. what do you do like a like a dark roast hot coffee do you put milk in it or no 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 black black coffee. Black. dark roast yeah, there was that study yeah. that said like people who drink coffee black it's like a sign of a psychopath um 
So it's probably that's accurate. I know. I, you know, I <laughs> uh, drink it. The reason why I drink black coffee, Bo, is because of my first, my first reporting job. I couldn't afford milk or sugar. That's, and I developed a taste for black coffee, <laughs> and that is why I bring black coffee today. That's, that's never, accurate, totally true. I've never heard anybody say that before, to be honest with you, but that is great, a great you know, reason why you drink a black. I just... I do it for like perceived weight loss reasons. And I don't know. I also just don't really like, I don't like milk in it unless there's a lot of sugar, but I don't want to have a lot of sugar in it. So it's kind of this weird thing, but um, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I mean, if you're drinking good enough coffee, it should be fine black. It's like flavorful enough. Um, if you drink like Correct. really good coffee, but um, I don't, I drink like bad coffee and I also drink it black, but it's just, you know, whatever. But if you drink bad coffee or perceived cheap coffee, like your soldiers or whatever, yeah, perceived as long as you put, Right. If you put, if you make it strong enough, it tastes like anything else. Exactly. Like Starbucks tastes like a really strong cup of Folgers to me. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And they burn it half the time anyway. I'm, I'm a big cold brew guy, but now we're getting to the time of year where I've switched into hot. So, um, yeah. what's, what's your favorite place you've ever traveled? Hmm. Uh, my wife and I travel quite a bit. Um, she's a big, big travel person. And when we first met, she goes, I hope you're okay with doing that. And I was like, well, I haven't been anywhere, but Cancun so cool. Um, we have been a lot of places like you traveling, right? Aren't you traveling soon? Yeah. Yeah. I'm about to go to yeah. uh, the middle East. I would say we were in Morocco a couple of years ago. Um, not my favorite place, but a cool experience nonetheless. Um, I have to go with probably Cape Town, South Africa at this point. Wow. I'd love to go there. Loved it. Loved it. Loved it. Loved it. South Africa in general, I was like enamored by, we, I'm enamored by the entire continent. I'd love to go back because we went to Morocco. Uh, we went to Cape Town on our, as part of our honeymoon, but we went to Morocco with some friends a couple of years ago. But like I, Africa is just like, yeah, I'd love to go back. But so far Cape Town, I think wins the day. Yeah. Um, good stuff. Um, good answer. Um, what is a book, um, that has greatly influenced your life or maybe influenced your life the most besides your own? <laughs> That's funny. Um, I, uh, like influenced my life, like professionally or just that I really, just any, any it, way. Or? I mean, probably I'm probably skewing more personal here, but you know, or, or is there a book or that you've read the most in your life? Like you've read it multiple times or a book that you've given away the most as a gift. Um, and you can always just say pass too, if you don't have a rapid. No, I, I, like I would say the one, the one of the best books I've read recently, and not just because it hasn't impacted me in a way. Um, I, I read fiction because I need to get lost in fiction. You know what I mean? Like I don't, I don't personally, even though I wrote one, I don't usually read nonfiction that much okay. um, or prescriptive nonfiction, like, you know, life hack type stuff. Um, so when I read, it's usually to kind of just get lost in a story. I love, there's a, my favorite author is a guy named Jonathan Tropper. He's got like, I think six or eight books that I think are amazing. Every, every single one of them, I, I devoured them. Um, he hasn't written one in a while, but, uh, but the most recent book that I've been a huge fan of is called, uh, I don't remember the author's name and it's on the bookshelf, but I can't get to it now, but it's, uh, it's called All That's Said. She's uh, an Irish writer and it's about this guy that's sitting in an Irish pub and each chapter is a, is a toast to the person in his life that affected him the most. And uh, it's just this beautifully written book that once I closed it, I was like, ah, oh, what a great book. Wow. I told everyone like you have to read this book. It's incredible. It's but fun. I'm also a sucker for like a, a male protagonist that has like 
that's always re- that's like a, a reflective male protagonist is like I'm a sucker for a book like that. So yeah. this is a this uh, I really got lost in it and I I adored it. It was a great book. It's called All That's Said. All That's Said. Yeah. yeah. Um, I forget the author's name. All right, but Google. Um, we got Google on our side. Yeah. Um, there you go. You know, it's funny. I forgot. I just remembered one story that I had to tell about you, and it's that. Um, I remember asking you for some reporting advice um, years ago, many years ago, because you you were you had presented a story or something like that that you did with the police, like you were doing a police ride along, and I told you that sometimes I felt I, I felt like I had a difficult time getting the police to trust me or to you know invite me on a ride along. Sometimes, even though I'd done a few, but um, because you know they kind of viewed me as like a stiff. You know, I show up in a suit and tie, and I'm like this guy with a microphone and you know we just like can't relate and you were like well you know there's only so much you can do about that I mean if you go on a ride along maybe first of all don't wear a suit but you were like the big thing is this and I was like on the edge of my seat and you were like swear and I was like what and you were like yeah just 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 throw just like hey man what the fuck's going on and I was like what and you were like yeah like you just gotta you gotta start swearing more around them and I was like seriously you're like yeah I mean you're like no I mean you were like half kidding you're like that's not really gonna change things all together wholesale, but you're like, yeah, I mean, you just have to be more relatable. You just have to be more relatable and you're both humans. And, you know, he's like, but sometimes believe it or not, you know, just showing them that you're human and like swearing a little bit in conversation can help. You don't remember that? Yeah, I do remember that. I don't remember saying that, but I remember that conversation. Okay. Um, I do. <laughs> Maybe yeah. I took the wrong thing. No, from I do. It. You're, like, you're like, what you got to do no. is file. <laughs> but, it sounds like, but it's funny because it sounds like exactly what the fuck I would say. Yeah. Um, no, the cops view reporters as stiff. They do that or they, they're out to get them kind of thing. And then once you, I mean, for me, I, I'm, my father was a cop. My uncle was a cop. So like, I kind of, I relate to, to that a lot easier than a lot of reporters do. Yeah. Um, but like, yeah, just, uh, just being like, this is bullshit. And then they're like, Hey, this guy's all right. You know? And then, right. you know, you, you, you start forming relationships, but it's yeah. all about being treated fairly too. But a lot of the good cops just want to be treated fairly. And sometimes, and, and, yeah. Well, and I get that, but it's always like, how do you prove that in a matter of two minutes, you know, during your elevator pitch yeah. type of thing, when you first meet them, it's like, right. you know, before they've seen you do any work. I mean, and sometimes it helps if they have seen your other work, you know, because then they know Correct. That, if you've been around a while and you're a known yeah. entity, it's a lot easier. That, that's yeah. the payoff of being in a market for a little bit. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, okay. What what purchase of a hundred dollars or less has most positively impacted your life in the last six months or in recent memory? AirPods. That's not that less than a hundred bucks, though. Yeah, those are like mm. one sixty nine ish, but yeah, um, and the new ones are like two forty. Um, yeah, I'm not going also, the new ones. Yeah. I have a pair of AirPods. I resisted for the longest time, and then a friend. Oh, did I? Me, a friend convinced me, and they actually are really good. It's it's like I know I have the same exact story. I was like, now nah, they're gonna fall out because right. I was struggling with it. I was right. struggling with like with with um with bluetooth for a long time i I bought the bose ones and they were too heavy and they'd fall out then i bought the jaybird ones and they were uncomfortable and my buddy at work's like just do the airpods i'm like no they're gonna fall out i could just see i'm gonna lose them and they've they're amazing i mean one of the best parts is like the actual the bluetooth connection is really strong and really easy like that was my big hang up with bluetooth shit was that it never connected right and it disconnected and the battery died and they yeah. actually just work, which is nice. But the thing that made me upset was when I read the Washington Post or Wall Street Journal article about how they're going to die. They're going to die within 36 to 38 months, depending on usage. And you cannot replace the battery. There's no way to replace it. So they just die. 
Uh, and you can go I to the Apple's. The, What's that? I ran mine through the washer on accident once. They're still fine. <laughs> and they lived. Well, that's good. I mean, they're, they're <laughs> yeah. tough little guys, but apparently they don't last forever. They're like us. And uh, yeah, there's, there's no way to replace. So you have to take them to the Apple store and then you say this like special thing, like hot, like you actually have to like phrase it correctly. And then they'll offer you new ones for like $49 per bud, I think. So they're like, it's like a hundred dollars mm-hmm. to buy a new one. But I mean, so basically they last three years, um, which was pretty disappointing to me. Um, but yeah, they might even be worth Ooh. it though. Cause they're that good. So three years for 169 bucks. And yeah, it might be worth it. Um, it's almost like you're renting them. It's fine. If you just view it that way. All right. Well, we'll let you go with a purchase uh, of 169 or whatever they cost. Um, okay. How, here's the next question. Um, and I'm pulling out some different ones for you since you studied. Um, how has a failure or an apparent failure set you up for later success? And remember, these are rapid fire, so try to keep it short. Um, so, for example, do you have like a, quote, favorite failure of yours? Like a time you failed that... It, 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 at the time was horrible, but looking back on it, it really set you up for later. Yeah. I mean like that specifically, no, but I mean, I, I mean, I, I yeah, that, I mean, just like knowing that you fucked up a story and knowing that you'll never do that again. And that's, that's basically it, you know, wake, waking up in a panic and going, shit, I think I got that wrong. And you know, you'll never do it again. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, or, or effing up a relationship with a, with a source or, anything like that. I mean, thankfully that hasn't been a problem, but like, you know, I usually, I'm, especially with big pieces that are dropping, like the week that they drop, I'm on, I'm like crazy. I'm like, I, I cannot, my wife doesn't even like to be around me, you know, and I'm like, ah, you know, right, I gotta right. get this right. It's gotta be great. You know, but yeah, just that kind of stuff that, it, that, that forces attention to detail because I think, I think most of our job is attention to detail. Yeah. Um, if you could have a gigantic billboard anywhere, we'll just say in the middle of Baltimore and also one in the middle of DC with anything on it, uh, metaphorically speaking, getting a message out to millions or billions of people, what would it say and why? And it could just be a few words or it could be a paragraph. It could be someone else's quote, um, a photo, anything. I mean, it could just be an advertisement uh, for your book if, if you want. It could let the fine, but let's pass that one. I don't, I don't really know. All right. Um, what is one of the best or most worthwhile investments you've ever made? And it could be an investment of money, time, energy, et cetera. I would honestly say the investment in myself, um, the investment in trying to make this book happen and, and the investment in forcing myself to believe in myself, which was a big part of the process. Yeah, that, that, that's probably easy answer after, yeah, after hearing all that. Um, yeah. What is an unusual habit or an absurd thing that you love? That's vague, though. It is. Give me an yeah. example. Well, I'm giving you, you know, a lot of uh, operating room. <laughs> these, are, these, um, these are really tough, man. Um, so, uh, you know, like an unusual habit I used to have is that I used to, when I, back when I ate a little more unhealthy, I used to... Um, like to dip my fries from Wendy's into the frosty treat, um, the frosty ice cream. That was a big habit, you know, an unusual habit that I had. Um, yeah. I don't know. An absurd thing that I love is collecting basketball shoes that I then don't wear. Um, so I don't know. Mm. We don't want to get that personal here. Let's keep it more generic. Um, all right. In the, <laughs> in the last, we'll, we'll skip that one. We'll come back to it. Um, in the last five years, what new belief, behavior or habit has most improved your life? 
Um, habit would probably be um, meal prepping on Sundays, which oh. is boring, I know. But okay. like, no, no, I like that. I like, I like stuff like that. How long does it take you usually? Like in two hours? We will, we will spend like upwards of like three hours just cooking our asses off on a Sunday. And then you so we're both, my the... wife and I both have like crazy careers. So it's like, you know, so we put them every, put them in the fridge and it's grab and go all week, which, which makes, which saves so much time during the week. It's incredible. Hmm. Awesome. And you're eating a lot healthier too. Yeah. You put it in like little plastic containers and stuff and. Right. Right. Um, what's your, what's your favorite or go to, you know, meal to prep like chicken and broccoli or with a little bit of rice or what? Yeah, it's basically just steamed vegetables. Like I'll grill a bunch of stuff on the on the grill, and then um, chop them all up, and then uh, chicken, usually chicken or some steak. Okay. And I'll just as uh, the protein. Yeah, it's pretty boring. I mean, the weekends we go out to eat, you know, because my wife's a foodie. But like, usually it's just the uh, you know four days, five days a week. It's such meal prep stuff. Sure, you know? sure. Um, what advice would you give to a smart, driven? college student who's about to enter the real world so the speak. real world or our business uh we'll just keep it <laughs> generic uh the real world quote in quotes the real world um i would say pay deference to your to people that um are more experienced and older than you um i don't that that quality is not as well respected as i as i uh, as i as I would hope it would be in some of the, you know, uh, in some of the younger folks, but, um, and then read a lot and, um, always seek perspective because I think, I think now we have the opportunity to put ourselves in our own bubbles and just hear our own echoes. And I, I think a lot of people don't seek, don't spend a lot of time seeking perspective. And I think it's crucial. Yeah. Um, when you personally feel overwhelmed or like you're lacking focus, um, what do you do to try to regain focus or calm down? Uh, drink. <laughs> All right. Um, well, it did help you write the book. <laughs> so it did help you write the book. Um, you know, it's right. like honestly a dark room where you're just like uh, and, a, and a glass of whiskey and just kind of let your mind go or a long run. I'll say that too. What was the second? Oh, a really, really run. long run. Oh, long run. Rolling rock. A no, long I was, run on a hot I thought, day. I, I yeah. thought I heard you no, say no. whiskey or a rolling rock. I was like, okay. No, 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 no. I, like just, just a whiskey by yourself and let your mind go or a long run on a hot day. A long run on a hot day goes along with me. Like I can, my man, my mind can take the trash out and yeah, yeah. I can, I come back a much, much better place. Yeah. All right. Super fast answers here as we wrap up. Um, what besides, besides watching the wire for the ninth time, what TV show are you streaming right now? Um, atypical. I started on um, on Netflix, which I think is a cool show. That's like the and kid then, who has uh, special needs. Yeah, they just dropped a new series, a, a nice. new uh, season. Uh, and then uh, we wa we're watching Unbelievable right now too, which uh, so far has been very, very good. Cool. Um, do you listen to podcasts generally? Yes or no? Um, not as much as most people do that I hear about, but yes, I do listen. To okay. Um. This is the fill in the blank question. So Bo is the blank of journalism. I like to, excuse me, I like to say um, Bo is the Jason Bourne of journalism is kind of what I would like to be um, or how I would like to see myself. Uh, Brian <laughs> is the blank of journalism, sort of like a fictional alter ego. That's a tough one, man. 
um, uh, um, skip. I don't know what to say. Yeah, there. you can just pass it. Um, who's your favorite stand-up comedian? Bill Burr. Oh, he's good. Right now, Bill Burr. Oh, he's my spirit animal. I love him. Paper, uh, Paper Tiger is his uh, latest, right? Um, yeah, it's so good. <laughs> yeah. Um, best movie about journalism. Or Louis Black. I'll say Louis Black, too. Okay. Yeah. Uh, best movie about journalism of all time. Um, I have to go, and it's going to be very classic here, but I have to go, I'm going to have to go on the president's men on that one. Yeah. Yeah. Get Maybe broadcast get news. Get that a lot on the pod. Um, broadcast news is good too, though. Like eighties, mm-hmm. like broadcast news is, is pretty, is pretty legit as well. It's kind of, they serve different, two different purposes, but those two I think are my best. Do you see yourself staying as a, uh, on air TV reporter the rest of your life? Mm, I don't know. Maybe guess it depends, depends, on, the, depends on how the, the industry does. is is changing rapidly. So we'll see if uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah, but I have no plans on anything soon. You know. Yeah. Uh, rap music or country music? Neither. <laughs> uh, if I had a, if you're gonna if you're gonna say if you're gonna make me pick, I would go rap. I I. I detest country music. I will uh, run away from it. <laughs> run away from it. Um, jazz it. or blues? Uh, definitely blues. Yeah. Cats or dogs? Dogs. Stick mic or lavalier mic? Oh, nice. That's a nice. That's a nice little twist. Uh, that's going to depend, um, but I usually will ask for a lot. All right. Brian Kubler of WMAR in Baltimore, um, author. There's one more question you didn't ask that I was hoping to get. Okay, which one was that? All right, I was like, which one would be, would be the most, uh, in your reporter bag, which one is the most? Oh, yeah, uh, okay, okay. People so, carry, uh, what, yeah, what is something that you bring so, to work with you just about every day uh, that you view as indispensable, but everyone else would think is kind of weird or, or, or surprising? A uh, reporter's pad with a pen. Reporter pad with a pen. There you go. A little and bit old school. A, a very old school and a, and a plastic bag in my bag in order to put my notes into the clear plastic bag so I can read them while I while it's raining and nothing gets so crazy. That was a trick I learned back in the beginning of my career. But it's I, I'm still old school with that stuff because I see reporters on the phone all the time mm-hmm. and, and reading off their phone and taking notes. To me, I it's got to be... I have to write it down and I like to write my scripts out and I like to read my both shots and all that kind of stuff from an actual pad and paper because it's in front of me. My, those are my words. I wrote them and no one's going to call in the middle of my live shot and blow out my script to where I'm stumbling and bubbling and go and losing my space. Cause that's happened to a bunch of colleagues that I know. And I'm like, that nope, has, I'm going pad and pen. That has happened to me. That has happened to me. Yeah. Um, unfortunately no, right? I'm, I go back and forth. I try to bring pad and pen for all of the reasons you said, but I, I just sometimes neglect to do so. So I end up as one of the cell phone people who I kind of despise that look, but it is what it is. Um, yeah. yeah. You know, well, I've, I've actually heard people say that you, you should use a uh, waterproof pencil, like a camping pencil or whatnot. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, um, I've, 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 I've read that, but that's like looking into that too. Uh, which is like pretty hardcore, but I guess you just go to REI and buy like 10 of them and keep them in your drawer and your bag and yeah. there you go. 
Um, and then you might not even need the plastic bag, but yeah, I, I love the plastic bag trick. That's smart. I've never heard of that to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, this oh, has been cool, fun. Cool. Uh, Brian, this has been awesome to uh, catch up and, uh, hear about everything that you're doing and your, your monk like, uh, whiskey discipline over a course of, <laughs> the course of six years to, uh, write your book. So, uh, Brian's book once again is called the long blink. Um, it's available on Amazon through Barnes and Noble, which does still exist, um, and several mm-hmm. other uh, places that, that sell books. So um, look for it on store shelves or on the internet shelves and uh, go out and, and read Brian's book. Uh, very exciting project and sounds like a worthwhile one and one that might uh, change people's lives or perspectives. So, hey, thanks for making the time to uh, come on the podcast. And, and real quick, uh, now that you've been forced and coerced into creating social media accounts. Um, if people do want to look you up, where can they find you? What are your handles? Um, on Twitter and on Instagram, um, I am at Brian Kubler, B-R-I-N-K-U-E-B-L-B-R underscore because some other guy has my full name and doesn't use the but doesn't use the social media accounts and it annoys me. So the, so underscore, my, the underscore comes at the end of both names? Yeah, so you're typing in my name. And when you're typing in my name, I'm the one that pops up. But my, my actual handle has an underscore in the end, which I can't stand. Yeah. And um, on, on uh, Facebook, it's uh, at author Brian Kubler. And then I have a website called brian-kubler.com, which has all the book information, where to buy it, backstory, my bio, media, all that other kind of stuff. Sounds good. All right, we got it all. Okay, Brian, have a good night. Good talking with you. You too, man. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Bo. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Reporter Podcast with Bo Berman. Please share, subscribe, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts.